over 70% of global companies experienced some form of ransomware attack through 2022. So 70%. that gives you a yeah, that gives you a sense wow. of the scale of the problem that is potentially out there. Hi, welcome to the Zurich North America podcast, The Future of Risk. Today, we're going to explore the topic of cyber risk for businesses, trends in cyber threats, and the future of cyber insurability. My name is Stephanie Gordon. I'm one of the Future of Risk podcast hosts, and I'm joined today by our North America Head of Professional Liability and Cyber, Michelle Chia, and Stephen Moss, Zurich's Global Head of Financial Lines and Cyber from our London office. So Stephen and Michelle, welcome. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having us today. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks very much for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So it's not news that the accelerated adoption of and reliance on digital technology has expanded cyber risk. We know that malicious actors are increasingly sophisticated in the techniques that they're using to launch cyber attacks that can slow down or even shut off a critical business process, which disrupts our business, right? And we also see attacks that result in data theft or extortion um, against the publication of sensitive data. So as a result, we saw actually cybercrime and cyber insecurity climb into the top 10 list in the global risk report that we released earlier this year for the first time in 2023. So Stephen, why don't we start by having you lay the framework for us by defining cyber attacks and ransomware from a business perspective. So we're all kind of on the same page with what that means. What does that look like? And can you share some examples with us? Yeah, sure. So I think it's probably worthwhile just tracking it right back to basics in terms of what is a cyber attack. Um, and, you know, to me, it's really looking at any attempt by an unauthorized party to gain access to a computer system or network with the intent to cause damage. And that damage could come through in numerous ways in terms of disabling or destroying access to that network or computer or stealing or at least threatening to steal some of the data that's stored within it. And once you kind of got over the definition of the cyber attack, you then start to look to categorize the different levels of cyber attack. And really, to me, that that falls into two main categories. We, we have untargeted attacks, which are really indiscriminate in nature. It's what I call a scattergun approach through which attackers will look to, you know, kind of expose vulnerabilities across multiple different systems, across multiple different sectors. And ultimately they're completely agnostic in terms of who the end victims are. That compares against targeted attacks, which by okay. very nature of its definition is much more targeted in nature. These attacks are looking to exploit specific vulnerabilities against a specific company or segment of the market. These tend to be much more complex and sophisticated in nature, largely because they're, they're tailor-made around the specific notion they know, of attack. They know exactly. what they're going for. Yeah, they completely know what they're going for. Okay. And also, I think there's an element here of because they're more complex in nature, the expected payout for instigating an attack on that nature is that much greater. Ransomware, you mentioned, is one of the growing trends in the market and one that we've seen really drive a significant change in the cyber insurance market. But ransomware itself is is no different to any other attack. I think the only difference with ransomware is the fact that it could be untargeted and it could be targeted. But the threat remains the same in terms of it is a threat to effectively instigate some form of malware against the company unless a specific ransomware payment is made. 
And that payment is usually demanded in some form of cryptocurrency, which, as we all know, is pretty difficult to trace at the best of times. So, Stephen, that was actually quite funny. I've never heard the phrase scattergun. I think in the States we call it a shotgun approach as opposed to the sniper approach. And yeah, just to add a bit more visual to this, not that that's not visual already, gosh. Um, so back in 2013, 2014 in the United States, we did see a lot of big box retailers get hit by bad actors. So that's an example. Stephanie, you asked for examples earlier where these criminals found security vulnerabilities in the payment card chain and lots of credit card numbers were stolen. And we found some instances that these credit card numbers were sold on the dark web for pennies on the dollar. The other examples that Stephen had mentioned was the trend around using highly useful logging credentials to shut down networks and systems. So whether that was the shotgun approach or scattergun approach or the sniper approach, um, initially the ransomware situation started as a sniper approach to target organizations that were perceived as deep pockets. We've seen some of the ransom negotiation correspondence and actually it's quite wild. Uh, but there was a common theme back in 2018, 2019 time period where these attacks would come in on a Friday night or during a holiday weekend. Not sure if that was an American thing or not, but it seems like a lot of the American holidays that I observed in the States, whether it was July 4th, Independence Day or otherwise, were quite ruined, uh, unfortunately. But that was because it was commonplace at the time to have cybersecurity or systems monitoring that was more following the nine to five, five days a week, rather than the 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we'll talk about that from a resilience standpoint later on. But just wanted to add that American spin to it as well. That's interesting that they were preying on that vulnerability, actually. You know, I'm curious, Stephen, did you see any kind of a similar trend where you are from either in the UK or from a global perspective? Yes, certainly. The regulation was certainly led by the US in the early days of cyber as it kind of evolved. And that regulatory kind of intervention, particularly around some of the retailers and credit card information, that took a little bit of time to catch up elsewhere. But it's certainly very similar trends that we're seeing outside of the US now on a worldwide basis from what we've, we've routinely seen in the US. I think the other thing I would say is that unlike a lot of other insurance lines of business, cyber is very global in its nature. It tends not to target individual companies or individual countries as such. You know, the, the impact of a widespread untargeted cyber event is global in its nature. And, you know, to give you another example, WannaCry back in 2017 was probably one of the first truly widespread vulnerabilities that spread very, very quickly throughout operating systems. And, and really, you know, spread down to very little human intervention as well. So I think that's a really good example of something that, you know, can spread very, very quickly on that untargeted way on a truly global scale. It's interesting when you when you think about they're preying on whatever, like I said, is vulnerable, you know, that it's not so much targeted, makes it almost feel like anyone is potentially a victim, which is unsettling, you know. So it's funny because the examples both of you gave are relatively recent. And it reminds us that this is actually not that old of a threat. You know, it's still an emerging threat and a developing threat. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of increases in this particular risk compared to, you know, you've both mentioned 2017, 18, 19. It's not very many years ago. 
So what's the exponential increase and can you quantify that in any way? Yeah, I think from from my perspective, certainly one of the big drivers of change in this market has been ransomware. Ransomware is nothing new. It's been around for many, many years. But, you know, I think the scale of ransomware attacks, both in terms of frequency and severity, increased exponentially, really starting in 2019, but probably peaking around 2021. With that ransomware side, you know, we saw an increasing amount of average settlements and average payouts in terms of expectations of what those attacks were worth from an attacker's perspective. But also, you know, I I think we saw an interesting level of complexity in terms of how those attacks were actually perpetrated. Unfortunately, cyber is such a fast moving market. The threat of yesterday isn't necessarily what we're going to see tomorrow. The only constant that we've seen is very much that the level of complexity in all of these attacks is increasing over time. Yeah, and to add to that, the monetization or the commercial viability of this type of risk has just continued to increase. And as cyber risk evolves, it just creates that uh, opportunity for better, for worse. We've seen the headlines. We've seen the statistics. And there's one that's quite bone chilling that I'll add in here. Approximately 60% of small businesses, and this is based on a poll in the United States, approximately 60% of small businesses have gone out of business six months after being impacted by a cyber event. Wow. So cyber resilience is critical for organizations. That is also, Shirley, I just chip in with some of the stats that we've got from a global perspective as well. And I think, you know, the survey that you mentioned at the start, Stephanie, made reference to the fact that over 70% of global companies experience some form of ransomware attack through 2022. So 70%. That gives you a, yeah, that gives you a sense wow. of the scale of the problem that is potentially out there. Those are amazing statistics. And, and to your point, Stephen, bone chilling. How is the ins- insurance industry responding? Like, are we able to keep pace with this or not? Given our reliance on technology as a society, Stephanie, and how interconnected we are today, cyber resilience is a must. Risk mitigation methods organizations can use to avoid, minimize, or recover swiftly from a cyber event is first and foremost. Cyber insurance is one part of risk management, but it should be used when all else fails. Okay. Can you talk a little more about what that means? Sure. Um, So, there is, we're going to be talking about the NIST framework in a little bit, and the NIST framework helps us think through the best practices an organization can employ. There are five pillars in the NIST framework, identify, detect, protect, respond, and recover. These five pillars are equally important. I can explain what each one of these pillars means, but before I do that, Stephen, did you want to chime in as well? Yeah, sure. So I think it's probably worthwhile just tracking back in terms of looking at some of the market dynamics um, and, you know, looking at how the cyber market has evolved in terms of demand for the product in the market. And we're seeing a huge influx in terms of not just the level of interest in cyber insurance, but also the amount of new customers that are looking to purchase cyber insurance for the first time. And as Michelle says, you know, I think a lot of that is down to the adoption of technology in the global business market that we all operate in. Um, I think remote working has a certain element to that, the increased use of cloud computing, digital transformation, and the hot topic on everyone's lips is data at every juncture we look at. But also, I think there's growing demand as a result of some of the increased awareness. You know, we touched on some of the regulatory developments around the globe. 
but also you know very rarely do you get to open a newspaper these days without some horror story of the latest cyber attack or ransomware payment that's going through so i think that awareness in terms of not just regulatory developments technology developments but also the fear factor of the threat actors that are out there now is really helping fuel that demand. And to answer the question, has the market kept up? I, I think the market has done a pretty good job of keeping up, considering the exponential increase in demand for these products. You know, the insurance market for cyber has been around for 20 plus years. Okay. And during that time, we've offered some, you know, really good, valuable protection for clients and customers at a time when they've needed it most. I think the recent challenges around ransomware has marked a change in the cyber insurance market, not least in terms of some of the capacity availability and pricing that the market is looking to charge given the change in underlying risk that the market's seen as a whole. But also I think it will drive some pretty fundamental change in terms of using some of the data that we've collected over the last 20 years to really start to drive minimum standards and raise the bar in terms of insurability of customers. And I think that really lends into what Michelle's just said around cyber resilience. You know, the market is really going to look to differentiate their risk appetite and look to give greater credit for cyber resilience as we look to price cyber risk going forward. And I think more in the medium term, it opens up a grown-up debate, I think, around systemic risk in the market. How do we assess systemic risk? And also, how do we start to define systemic risk, which is inherent in all cyber insurance that's written at the moment? I appreciate that clarification. And let me tie a couple things together and ask another question. You mentioned the statistic about 70% of businesses have experienced a cyber attack that we're seeing an exponential increase, for instance, in ransomware, for instance, that the the nature of cyber risk is really evolving um, and the pace is evolving. So do we reach a point where cyber becomes uninsurable? So I guess that question is directed at me and you gave Stephen all the easy questions to start with. <laughs> <laughs> but the the answer is no, but yes. But now, so let me let me clarify. Okay. So yes, cyber risk is evolving. We've come a very long way to, if anyone remembers ICQ or AOL, Yahoo Messenger, we are more connected today than we ever were. And as cyber risk evolves, we are able to identify and differentiate between quantifiable and unquantifiable risk, particularly unquantifiable systemic cyber risk. You're going to hear me slow down my speech because there are some tongue twisters here. And I'm uh, I'm a little bit nervous about this whole Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers. <laughs> but um, let me give you an example of quantifiable cyber risk, because I believe that's probably going to be the next question you throw at me. So, you know, credit card data that was not encrypted and was shared with the public. As simple as that, kind of pointing back to one of the examples we shared earlier on. Then the next question is, what is quantifiable? systemic cyber risk. So something like malware or a widespread virus that can be defended against commercially, and that is key. So commercial cybersecurity tools exist. Organizations can invest in protecting themselves using commercially available cybersecurity tools to avoid, minimize, or recover swiftly from cyber events. 
then the tongue twister here. What is an unquantifiable systemic cyber risk? I'm going to get better yes. at this each time I say it. <laughs> so um, events where perhaps military-grade tools are used to perpetrate acts to cause economic or social disruption with very little or no means of remediation. So, for example, cyber warfare, cyber right. terrorism okay. linked to nation state actors and certain types of critical infrastructure failure. One of the things that we are talking about quite robustly these days is that unquantifiable systemic risk will not be insurable in the traditional cyber risk transfer market. Can you define just for a second, Michelle, please, unquantifiable? What do you when you use that? What do you mean? So unquantifiable at its core means something that cannot be calculated, something that cannot be quantified. And when you attach that to a systemic risk, basically it's an event that cannot be determined, that cannot be calculated. And then the scale is even more catastrophic because it's hitting so many organizations, so many entities and individuals all at the same time that it has um, it's like a super catastrophic event, basically, okay. in, in layman's okay. terms. Um, All right. And so this type of risk will not be insurable in the traditional cyber risk transfer markets, but we are encouraging and engaging in discussions to build solutions. And I want to focus on the solution aspect of this. Okay. Let me, if I may, let me ask a follow-up question. Oh, I'm sorry, Stephen, please go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just really going to build on Michelle's comments. You know, I like her reference to a super cat event. And this is effectively mm -hmm. what we're talking around in terms of unquantifiable risks here. You know, cyber is systemically exposed inherently by virtue of what protection we provide. But there's a very, very big difference in terms of the protection we provide around data breach, around outsourced service providers, compared to a state-sponsored attack against the society as a whole. Okay. And that's really the, the nature of differentiation that, you know, we're looking to make and indeed the rest of the market is looking to make. Um, and, and really trying to give some clarity around what we mean by systemic risks and how insurance policies should respond to them and equally perhaps how they shouldn't respond to them in the long term. Okay, thank you. So that makes me think there are other types of risks that have been determined to be um, uninsurable, for instance, and a lot of times then we see governments step in. Where is the government in this conversation on cyber risk? A few months ago, October 2022, the Federal Insurance Office, which is part of the United States Department of Treasury, issued a broad request for information about the need and the challenges around building a cyber backstop. Okay. There are other governments, including the United Kingdom, is holding talks with Pool Re and industry representatives to explore extending um, the UK terrorism backstop, remit to cover state-sponsored and war-related cyber attacks. The French Treasury is also engaging in similar discussions. These are just a few examples of this discussions happening on a federal level or a nation-state level across the globe to better understand what the challenges, what the needs are for filling this gap between what is quantifiable and what is unquantifiable systemic cyber risk. So it's kind of a public-private partnership. Kind of, yeah. 
you know, there's a question whether this will shape the way companies insure themselves against cyber threats. And instead of answering that question, I'm going to just pose more questions around that question. But first, a statement. I think that we on this podcast and perhaps the, the audience and perhaps even society at large, maybe we can agree and maybe we believe that it's not the private individual or a private organization's responsibility to defend and protect itself, ourselves against physical acts committed by other nation states or terrorists. Nor do we actually believe that it's the private sector's responsibility to recoup financially or to rebuild on our own after these types of physical events. Mm-hmm. So then here are my questions for the audience, for, for all of you. How about when military-grade cyber weapons are used to perpetrate acts against individuals or private companies, private organizations? Do I, as an individual, have access? Do private organizations, do companies have access to military-grade defense tools in the commercial market? How are we expected to defend, protect, rebuild after these types of events? I think that the challenge around cyber is unique. There is this intangible, this invisibility component that makes it really hard for all of us to visualize, one, when these events are actually occurring or that it's even a possibility at all. And I think that's why I'm posing these questions. Is there a parallel here? I agree entirely with that, Michelle, as well. And I think it's good that we're we're raising these questions in conjunction with our other peers in the market to kind of proactively address some of this now before an event happens. Let's hope it never happens, but at least we're being proactive about it now. And equally, I think it refocuses the conversation on what we can do in the market, you know, going back to the quantifiable risk and how we work with customers and clients in terms of improving that cyber resilience such that it's not just a risk transfer product but it's a whole suite of risk management services and risk transfer that we're selling so i think to have the conversation i've mentioned earlier the grown-up conversations around unquantifiable risk now is the right one to have i'm not too sure anyone's got the right answer as it stands now i appreciate both your perspectives and thank you for posing those questions and like you said it's an ongoing conversation that you know merits a lot of attention and open conversation, dialogue, grown-up conversation. So I want to go back for a second, Michelle. You started to talk about um, mitigating strategies and a framework. Let's talk about what can companies do to protect themselves a little bit. I'm curious whether that depends on the size of the company, where they're domiciled. The two of you you know, potentially have different perspectives on that. I think we want to talk about the National Institute of Standards and Technology um, cybersecurity framework. Did I say that right? It's my own tongue twister. You got it. Yeah. So I referenced it as the NIST framework earlier, but thank you for okay. clarifying the acronym. It's the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. Um, okay. The cybersecurity framework in particular, this is a framework that was put together in the United States, but surely it transcends the local component, the regional component, um, it can be used globally. There are five pillars. I'm raising my hand right now for those listening in. You can't see me, but you can certainly hear me. 
And every time I, I reference the NIST framework, I identify by the five pillars, so five fingers. The five pillars are identify, de protect, detect, respond, recover. And each of these pillars are equally important for a company's resilience. Each of these measures an organization's maturity. So it doesn't matter what size, what industry you're in. It's more a framework by which you can measure your sophistication, your maturity. And they are fairly simple to follow. They go by the name and the names are, are really, the pillars are very descriptive. So with identify, what parts of your system, your networks are critical to your organization's operations? What data can you not operate with? So that's just identifying what the critical, highly important, and also, you know, going down the variation all the way to, it, it's data that you hold at your care custody and control. Then you have protect. How are you protecting those critical aspects that you've previously identified and all the other levels of criticality or less critical systems, networks, data? Detect, how are you monitoring the activity impacting the aspects of the system that you've identified? So I've previously mentioned that 24 hours a day, seven days a week monitoring. It's important. We all know that that is important because there is no time component to cyber events. Then respond. If you've detected anomalous activity because you're monitoring your systems, your data 24-7, if you see something that you don't expect or that looks like it's unauthorized or out of the norm, how quickly can you isolate, minimize, mitigate that intended activity? Is it four minutes? Perhaps it's four hours? Perhaps it's four days, four weeks, four months? This may determine your organization's ability to recover, which is the fifth pillar. What processes and procedures are in place to remediate against or after the damage has been done? Data shows that organizations with cyber incidents response plans, disaster recovery plans, those who practice these plans, who follow these plans when something happens are more likely to continue business operations and recover more swiftly. So all these five pillars speak to resilience, not just for cyber, but it's been developed for cyber in particular to help organizations, regardless of their cyber resilience journey, despite their size, for them to be able to be resilient and march towards that cyber resilience maturity. That framework and, um, helps a lot. Yeah, Stephen? Yeah, and I think transparency around those guidelines in terms of how companies are actually executing on that as well. Being transparent with us as insurers and, and others in the market will certainly help in that journey that I mentioned earlier around positive risk differentiation, you know, particularly around that cyber resilience piece and, and proactively giving credit for those companies that can demonstrate their risk management techniques and you know how they would respond in the event of a cyber incident. I think the other aspect I'd add to that is, you know, once there is an incident, it's really important to learn from it as well. You know, post event, looking backwards, there's always lessons to be learned. And that kind of ongoing risk management review of best practice, patching security, et cetera, is really vital in addition to training employees, which is quite often a source of attacks of this nature as well. Those who do not learn from their mistakes are doomed to repeat them, right? There, there's a habit, unfortunately, of history repeating itself. <laughs> so I appreciate your perspectives on that. And like I said, I think the framework is really a helpful visual, even if we can't see it on your fingers, Michelle. But one final question, we'd be remiss um, if we didn't ask, 
if a company does experience a cyber attack or a ransomware attack or something, what should they do? And probably most importantly, what's the first thing they should do? Yeah, so I'll jump in here, even though my response might sound like a cop out, but just bear with me for like five seconds and hear me out. So the first thing I would say is check your analog incidents response plan, disaster recovery plan. There are different types of events, and hopefully you have planned for all these types of events, maybe not all, but at least a couple of different scenarios. And the response that you engage in will depend on the nature of the event. Law enforcement may be needed in certain circumstances. So in those specific circumstances, definitely engage with law enforcement. Connecting with your cyber breach coach in the United States, at least, um, because they are typically attorneys, law firms. It's important to engage earlier on in the process in the United States to help with maintaining that privilege. But this is a good time for a plug. You need to print out your incidents response plan and or the phone numbers you need for the individuals you must call immediately and put that on your bookshelf. If your systems go down, you might not be able to access the documents on your laptop, your network, your cell phone, etc. We are so reliant on technology, but if your systems are down, you won't be able to access any of these plans, no matter how well put together they are, no matter how much you've practiced them, unless it's printed, you won't have access to it. So please, please, number one thing to do, print it out. That's interesting. We are so reliant, like you said, on our technology. We take it for granted that it will always be there. But if it's the target of the attack, then not going to be an option. Can you define, you mentioned a phrase I've never heard before. I think you said your breach coach. Yes. So a cyber breach coach. It's basically. Does everybody some, have one of those? <laughs> everyone should definitely have one. It's like a life coach, uh, okay. but a breach coach, right? So <laughs> cyber events, they are a dime a dozen. And Breach coaches, they go by varying names, so they're basically individuals, um, organizations that can help you step by step. Sometimes they get involved with helping you to develop that incidents response plan or the disaster recovery plans in advance of that event actually impacting you. They can also help you practice through tabletop exercises. But at the end of the day, they are like a coach. They help you through the situation. There are going to be different variations of events. You could have a data breach or you could have a ransomware event or you'd have insert name of any other type of cyber attack. And because these breach coaches have been through thousands of events, they are prepared to help you through the unique circumstances. It might be your first time or your second time through a single type of cyber event, but they've been through thousands and can help you through those events. Is that unique, Stephen, to the U.S., or is that something that uh, you would say from a global perspective as well? Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of accessing incident response services, that's very much a global phenomenon and, and something Zurich offers, you know, in addition to the risk transfer, but also on the Zurich resilient services that we we, we put out there. Um, but, you know, going back to Michelle's point, I, I certainly think, you know, having a plan of action and executing on that plan, thinking of every eventuality, knowing everything normally is cut off at that point, you know, practice runs and everything else like that adds up to so much value as and when the time comes. And given the lost trends that we're seeing, that that time will come. And those that are, are more prepared and have more security measures on there, 
the less of an impact that has on the business and the quicker you can get back up and running without any long-term detrimental impacts. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, guys, for the discussion today and for taking the time to share your expertise on a, a topic that I'll say is unsettling at best, um, but important, as you've reiterated, to have conversations about. Um, so thank you so much for, for being part of the conversation. Thanks for the opportunity, Stephanie. Thanks very much. And to our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to serving up the next edition of Zurich's Future of Risk podcast soon. Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at ZurichNA.com and join us next week. The information in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained here may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee the accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you.